0: Greetings from Grace Community Church. I want you to know that uh, we think of you and pray for you often. Uh, Scott, uh, actually from the pulpit on many Sunday mornings, is praying uh, for your church uh, during his pastoral prayer. And so uh, for me, it, this is uh, I'm incredibly grateful and, and very humbled just to be able to come and share with you and just worship with you and engage in the Word with you together this morning, um, I, and I, you know, I had the I had the privilege of of attending a conference with your pastor Matt uh, last month, and uh, we had such a great time. He ended up having a room with me, so that was tough for him. But we had a great time catching up, and you know, I don't know if you fully appreciate this. I pray that you do, but. I can't tell you how stirred that I was spending time with him over a period of days and hearing him talk about you. You, this congregation, Trinity Church, because Matt loves you so much. It just comes out in everything he says. He has such an affection for this congregation and a deep uh, soul care you and uh, I, it, 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 it definitely motivates me to even the way I think about uh, our church. And so I, I know you appreciate that, I know you're praying for your team and for your pastor while they're away. Well this morning we're going to take a look at a passage of scripture in Galatians. So if you have your Bibles you can turn with me there this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. Now, Galatians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in, an, in a region known as Galatia. Interestingly enough, what is now Turkey, where your missions team is. But what's really intriguing about Galatians, to me, is that it's probably one of the harshest, most critical of all of Paul's letters. Uh, He barely finishes his greetings and his salutations before he begins attacking and charging the believers in Galatia for abandoning and deserting the gospel. He's indignant toward these false teachers who slipped in and began teaching a different gospel, a, a new gospel where circumcision and other religious regulations were required in order to be converted. And in this letter, Paul leaves no doubt I mean, he makes it crystal clear that there is absolutely no room for adding anything to the gospel or taking anything away from the gospel. Paul asserts that he contends that the gospel was not invented by man or created by man, that it came as a direct revelation from God. He asserts that the true gospel is that we are justified by Christ alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And apart from any works of law, any acts of self-righteousness or goodness or kindness. But I think to really understand the weight of this letter, we have to dig a little bit deeper to to really unpack the emotions and the depth of convictions behind Paul's words as He had invested a tremendous amount of energy and time. You can imagine him ministering the gospel, sharing the word, loving, and pouring himself into these people. And he had seen spiritual fruit. He had seen conversion. He had seen life change. And and it was amazing. And now these false teachers come in, and they are teaching a distorted gospel. And the believers in Galatia are biting on it hook, line, and sinker. Can you imagine how you must have felt? I had a teacher in elementary school who talked about, it's time to put on the imagination cap. So I'm going to ask you to put on your imagination cap this morning. And I want you to imagine that you're in your car, you're driving down the road in Nashville, it's a hot, humid day, and off the side of the road, you see this homeless person, And in a moment of divine compassion, you don't know exactly, it's it's beyond you. You know, the idea of giving money or even buying them a meal seems wholly inadequate. And so in this divine moment of compassion, you pull over, you invite them into your car, you take them to your home. You allow them to shower and to clean up and you give them clean clothes. And, And while they're doing that, you go down to the kitchen, you begin preparing a meal. But not just any meal. I'm talking about a Feast. I mean, you pull out of all of grandma's old recipes, and I mean you're putting together, you know, this amazing salad and fresh vegetables, and you're you're putting put you know, cooking a wide array of meats, and you you put together this amazing meal, and, and you even you even provide a couple of desserts, and so you sit down for this feast, and this homeless person is just blown away. And and you they they're, they eat and they're thoroughly stuffed and satisfied and it's an amazing moment this connection that you have and and you are clear crystal clear that at that moment you say to them listen you will never go hungry again because my kitchen is your kitchen I want you to live with me now so just picture you have this amazing connection next morning you get up go about your routine. You're getting ready to take the trash out to the garbage bins outside and you hear something. What's that? You go outside and you can't believe your eyes. There you see your new resident, formerly a homeless person, now welcomed into your home. You see them rummaging through the garbage, looking for some food to eat. In your wildest imagination, you cannot believe what in the world are they doing after having tasted the delicacies of quality food, why would they return to eating scraps out of the garbage can? As you think about how that might make you feel, you might begin to get a hint of how the Apostle Paul was feeling when he penned this letter after feeding The believers in Galatia, with the riches of God's word and the delicacies of the gospel, he returned to find them eating from the scraps of legalism, rather than feasting on the gospel they had once received. And so it's out of this depth of conviction and love for them that he writes these words. So this morning we're going to be just looking at three verses, Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. Would you stand with me as we honor God's Word? For through the law, I died to the law, so that that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died needlessly. Thank you. You may be seated. We can surmise from this passage and the text before, we can surmise that there's something going on beneath the surface here. There's an argument An argument that was not only very real 2,000 years ago, but one that continues to be in the church today. Paul's critics were contending that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from any works of the law, was dangerous. It was flat out dangerous. Because they believed that it weakened a person's sense of moral responsibility. In other words, if a person can be forgiven of their sin and justified through Christ by simply believing and trusting in Christ with no requirement to do any good works, well, isn't that like encouraging them to sin? After all, if God justifies bad people, what's the point of being good? I mean, we might as well live any way we please if I know that God will forgive me, right? You see, these opponents of Paul were charging that justification by faith rather than works, actually encouraged believers to continue in sin. They were demanding that the believers in Galatia honor what they were arguing for were the minimal standards of the law. And so Paul counters in verse 19 and says, through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul was shouting with all of his heart, that this legalism that the believers were incorporating into their faith was literally suffocating the life out of them. And as far as he was concerned, he had held a funeral and pronounced himself dead to the law. And he was telling the Galatians that to return to the Mosaic laws is like returning to the graveyard. It's like feasting on the delicacies from the Lord's table and then turning around, going to go into the back alley, and rummaging through the scraps of garbage. To eat from. I think we understand this on an intellectual level. But when it gets down to a practical level, I think you and I struggle with this same thing. I think we struggle with this whole idea if I'm dead to the law and alive to God, why do I still sin? Why do I still struggle so much? Paul certainly addressed this issue, he's very aware of it when he was writing to the church at Rome. He actually addresses this question and fleshes it out over three chapters, Romans 6-8. through You see, I think the real problem here is that the Judaizers, these false teachers, never really fully understood justification and regeneration. Wow, big words. Okay, justification, being made right with God. Regeneration, being given new life in Christ. You see, somehow I think they felt like justification was nothing more than some kind of legal document. You know, you go down to the courthouse, you get it stamped and filed away, you walk out and say, hey, I got my justification papers, we're good. You know, now go back and live my life just like I always have. Paul knew this. And so what he does here is he lays down for the believers in Galatia plain language to explain exactly what happens to us through justification and the means by which we are able to move forward with this new life in Christ we have been given. And so in verse 20, Paul spells it out. He he spells out exactly what this experience of death to law and life to God is like. And this is what I want us to give ourselves to the rest of our time this morning, to unpack this powerful statement. I believe it's one of the most amazing declarations in the entire New Testament. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Big statement. It's profound. So we need to break it into pieces in order to understand it. First phrase, I have been crucified with Christ. You see, we must connect the cross with dying to the self life. Now, I'm afraid there's a tendency in the mind of many believers for the cross to gradually evolve into being thought of as a historical turning point, some nostalgic reference point for our faith. But, friends, that's not enough. The cross of Christ is much more than those things. It is an eternal reminder that my wretched, sinful soul was absolutely doomed and deservedly hell-bound had not, had not the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the pure, blameless, glorious, loving Son of God been willingly slaughtered on a wooden cross, offered up as the atonement for my sin. Jesus Christ was the only one in the universe who was qualified to satisfy the wrath of God in my stead and in your stead. The cross of Christ is the very core of Christianity. It's the central issue of our faith. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, we must keep the cross central to our lives. And this next statement may be, You may may agree with it, you may not. But I want to tell you something. Every issue we encounter in our faith, when traced to its source, will fall under the shadow of the cross. And so it's important for us to understand two things about Paul's declaration. First, it's a past completed action with continuing results. And secondly, it is our responsibility to make the connection between the cross and and our act of dying daily to the self-life. First of all, it's a past completed action with continuing results. Notice that Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, then you have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. What does this mean? It means when Christ died, we died with him. Not our physical bodies, not our earth suits, but our, our spiritual selves died. Romans 6.3 says, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have been baptized into His death? And then the next verse says, therefore we've been buried with Him. To identify with the death of Christ on the cross is an acknowledgement that our sinful past is dead, blotted out forever. And the Judaizers just didn't understand that a person who is justified in Christ is not free to sin. There is no freedom in sin. Do I speak truth? There is no freedom in sin. There's only bondage. The person who is justified in Christ discovers that there is freedom in Christ. You see, as believers, we are free in Christ. And when we turn to sin, it's like, and we continue in that sin pattern, it's like taking chains and just, just bounding ourselves up in chains. We've been given freedom in Christ. Once we've been united to Christ in His death, our old life is finished. It's dead and buried. And the longer I experience life, I have to tell you that more I realize how much the past impacts the present. Over the years, I've seen just how common it is for people to be haunted by past experiences, whether it's something that uh, they did that they regret, or whether it's something that they maybe they were a victim of some injustice. But whatever it is, that past represents these painful memories, and with those memories comes sadness disappointment. And oftentimes, shame. And while I'm not a trained professional counselor, I would never claim to be knowledgeable of the most effective ways to process a a sinful past, a painful past, and would encourage you to get biblically oriented wise counseling if this is your experience. I can tell you this with great confidence this morning. If you're a believer in Christ... If you are his follower, something amazing has happened. You and your past have been crucified with Christ. You and your sin have been crucified with Christ. What better example do we have than the Apostle Paul himself who carried with him a horrid past? And yet we see that God delivered him from his past of being a persecutor of Christ of of being an accessory to murders. Not as if it it didn't happen because he knows it did. Paul was saying that those things really did happen. His checkered past, though, had been nailed to the cross and atoned for in Christ's sacrifice and was now buried. And Paul was able to look his past in the face and know that he and his past had been crucified with Christ. Christ. But while being crucified with Christ is a past completed action with continuing results, we also need to see that it is our responsibility to make the connection between the cross and our act of daily dying to the self-life. This is really not the part of the gospel we would want to uh, release to the marketing experts. It's not something they're going to want to bring out and accentuate. You know, Can you, can you just imagine you know, tweeting something out? You need to die. Die to yourself. It's not going to go over well. And I believe if Jesus were here, and I'm not going to dignify the argument whether he'd be a Facebook or not, but I'm just saying, if he was here, I guarantee you he would have lost most of his Facebook friends when he told his disciples that if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. To summarize, we must die to our old way of life. We must die to the idea that we know what's best for ourselves. We must die to putting our self-interest above everyone else's. We must die to our pride and self-sufficiency. Self-reliance and self-confidence cannot live at the foot of the cross. Think about it. How could it? As someone once said, the life of following Christ is not about trying. It's about dying but we must acknowledge that this act of dying to the self-life is not a one-time occurrence. The Spirit of God could really stir your heart this morning, sitting right here in this room, and you could make the decision right where you're sitting to die to the self-life. And you could simply just tell God, hey, I am done with trying to do life my way. And you might feel really good and really spiritual. And you might go home and and even have a, a, this euphoric sense of peace this afternoon. Who knows, you might even watch a rerun of Downton Abbey. I don't know. But tomorrow morning, or to, but later, tomorrow morning is going to roll around. And I will tell you what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You're going to begin to feel the pressures of the day. All those responsibilities are going to begin to lean in on you. And you're naturally begin to, going to begin to resort to the self-life of turning to your plans and schemes to meet those demands. It's at this point when you see your heart turning back to yourself that you must once again move toward the foot of the cross and lay your pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency down. It really isn't about trying harder. It's about dying to the self-life every day. How can we expect to experience the fullness of the resurrected life of Christ until we're willing to identify with His crucified life? Notice the next phrase. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, we must recognize our new identity by embracing the presence of And power of Christ in us. When Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, he's saying that he considers his former way of life finished. And now he's living with a new identity. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. This is a statement of reality, not of aspiration. It's a matter of fact. It's a declaration of identity. Well, who died? Really? I mean, who died? Well, in my case, it was David Atchison. Born as an ancestor of Adam. I was born without God's Spirit. I was a guilty sinner. I was spiritually dead. And although this earth suit I'm still in is breathing and moving, that's who died. That's who was crucified on the cross. Well, if that person died, who am I today? I am David Atchison in Christ. Although I still occupy the same old earth suit, growing every day, in my soul I am clothed with the robes of Christ's righteousness, washed in the blood of the Lamb. I am spiritually alive. I am totally forgiven. I have been adopted as a son of God, a member of His royal family. I am fully vested with a massive inheritance in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in the words of my friend Renee's mother, who departed this earth and entered heaven just a couple of months ago, I may not act holy, but I am holy in Christ. Now let me stop for a minute and, and just talk to you plainly. What I just said about myself is absolutely true. I am based that on, on 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has has come. You see, if you're a believer a follower of Christ, you've been given this new identity. This is your position in Christ. Maybe it will help you to think of yourself for a minute as an orphaned child. God has come to earth in the person of Christ. He's paid a costly price to bring you into His royal family. Though the death of Christ, He has now freed you from your previous life as an orphan. You are now officially a member of God's family, sealed by the blood of Christ. However, you've not reached your new home yet, which is heaven. Jesus has already gone ahead of you. He's making all the preparations for your new home. Meanwhile, you have been given a new name and a new identity. Your future is set. But before He departed, before He left you behind to prepare your new home, Jesus gave you an assignment, which is to make new disciples, thereby adding more brothers and sisters to this new family of yours. Now, in leaving you behind to fulfill His purpose, it meant leaving you in the same earth suit. But as far as your soul, who you are on the inside, you are a new person. He has promised to change you. Your identity was changed in an instant, but your behavior and your thought patterns must be changed through a process. The Bible calls this sanctification. Now do you see how this new identity, understanding our identity in Christ is a game changer in our lives. If we really can understand and embrace that truth, it's absolutely crucial that we understand this. But the problem comes in this. This whole identity thing, truthfully, can I just be honest? It sounds a little mystical, doesn't it? I mean, maybe because we, it's mystical, maybe because we don't really feel that different. Maybe because we don't look different. Maybe because we don't see the transformation in our hearts that we would hope for. We're all too aware of our continuing sin patterns. We want to see more life change, and it isn't happening. What we don't need to do is to get weird about our new identity in Christ. Let me encourage you, please don't do that. I mean, I would really recommend that we not develop some kind of a Christian version of a video game called Fugitives for Christ, where when you get to the 77th level, we all get new identities. We don't need that. We really don't. You know what we need? We simply need a greater awareness of His presence and His power. In our lives. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is acknowledging that in his own strength, drawing on his former self, where he pulled together all the discipline and all the self-glorifying effort he could muster up, he could do nothing. His best hope was to try and improve the same version of his old self. But once he came to understand that Christ now lives in him, he was free to rest, rest in the promise that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Are you aware of the presence and power of Christ in you? Is, is Is there an awareness? Is there something that says, he's here? I know he's here. Even when we don't feel him. Even when we don't have some euphoric emotion going on. He's with us. Next phrase that Paul says, it says, In the life I now live in the flesh. See, we need to live well in the reality of the here and now. Notice the pronoun Paul uses, In the life I now live. Paul has a new identity, a new I. Paul is saying that I do still live, but it is no longer I who craves self sufficiency and self exaltation. The new I turns away from the self life and looks to Christ to provide protect guide deliver me in the daily situations of life and notice the word flesh he says that the life i now live in the flesh paul is still working walking around in the same earth suit he's still living and breathing in the flesh you see this is a sanity check for us so that we don't go off into some crazy, mystical thing. Paul is reminding us that he lives in a real world, and there is no spiritual utopia. There's no Christian candy land. We live in a real world, and it's fallen. It's been marred by sin. It's continually characterized by disease and decay and death and evil. The real world is a tough place to live because it's hard. And It's messy. But when we understand our justification and our new identity, the reality of Christ's presence and power in our lives, then in the words of Peter, in, in 2 Peter 1, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need if we're aware of this truth. If we want to experience a life in Christ where He is demonstrating His power in you and through you, you have to be willing to come to him on his terms. Early in my business career, I can remember being exposed to an expression that was often used. The expression was this, what do you bring into the table? So as a young young man, real estate developer, I'm trying to get a seat at the table. I'm trying to Get in so I can make deals. And I, I learned that you have to bring something. If you're a real estate developer, you know, you have to, you have to bring uh, the land. Somebody's got to bring the money. You've got to be bringing the, the idea, the knowledge, the expertise. You have to be bringing something if you want a seat at the table. But when we come to the table of Christ, I want to tell you something that I believe is beautiful, wonderful news. When we come to the table of Christ, we bring nothing. Nothing. But what's so beautiful and so wonderful is this is the way He invites us. We bring nothing, He gives everything. We bring ourselves the way we are, broken, and He transforms us. We come to Him the way we are, and He changes us. Paul said at the end of this statement, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, we must keep trusting in Christ who is worthy of our whole heart. We know we are saved by faith, but Paul is calling us to live by faith. I have to tell you, sometimes I think we think in terms of, of, of faith as some big thing. It's like we've got to move to a certain level. That there's some big experience, that we have some like monumental step measured by intellectual soberness and an aggressive commitment to the will or something like that. But I think that places way too much weight on feeling like we have to arrive at some mystical level of confident faith. While that may happen, and praise God if it does, I have found a different path. And it's not really super impressive. I have found that the accumulation of daily acts of calling out to God for help in short sentences is what moves me in my life toward Him. The simple steps of trust to move forward inch by inch believe I believe give us a more accurate image of what it is to live by faith in Christ. And the only way I know to do this is to cry out for help every day, throughout the day, in short sentences. Like, Lord, I don't know how to handle this situation. Please help me. Lord, this relationship is broken and I don't know what to say to her. Help me. Lord, I'm going to get fired if I can't figure out how to do this. I'm not competent in this job. Help me. Lord, I can't get my sin that I did last night out of my mind. Help me. I have to talk to God in short sentences every day. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have those times when we get away and we get alone and we pray for an extended period of time. Doesn't doesn't mean we don't do that. But I mean for us to be aware of the power and the presence of Christ in our lives daily, we have to call out to Him. We've got to talk to Him. And I just happen to prefer short sentences sentences Notice that Paul never takes his eye off the object of his faith. He declares that he lives by faith in the son of God. I hear all about faith today. I hear it in the marketplace I hear it in churches. People talk about faith, this faith. I need to have enough faith. If I just had a little more faith, boy, he really has faith. What is your faith in? I think we put too much emphasis on the faith and not on the object. We need to have faith. We need to take simple steps and acts of trust in the Son of God, in the object of our faith. And then notice this is a statement of motive. God extends His grace to us out of sheer love, not out of duty or obligation, not because we've done something to earn the blessings that come from His sacrifice. It has absolutely nothing to do with our performance or anything we've ever done. He loves us. He loved us and gave Himself up for us. And when we function and act as if that didn't happen. Verse 21 tells us we, 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 just, we just nullify the grace of God. We, we, we nullify that, that Christ, why did he even go to the cross if we don't acknowledge this, if we don't trust in this and embrace his sacrifice for us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel we must cling to. Brothers and sisters, Paul gives us a powerful declaration of what it looks like to daily live out our faith, live out the reality of our justification in Christ. It's beautiful. Praise be to God for the incomparable love of Christ that because of his great love and willingness to give his life for our souls that we can pray together, I have been crucified with it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh Lord, may these words penetrate our hearts. May you move in our souls so that we would recognize this this powerful thing called the gospel, what you have done for us, Lord. And God, I pray that you would stir us to live in this faith. Lord, Help. I I pray you would just debunk all of the mystery and the, the mystical thoughts about our faith so that we can just simply call out to you and trust you, Lord, Lord, help us to have the faith just to know that our past has been crucified with Christ, Lord. That we no longer live as the old person, even when we are struggling with our sin. That the truth is that if we just turn to you, if we return to the cross, that we will know that we've been changed. And that you will begin to work out new ways of thinking and new ways of interacting with people and new behavior, Lord, in Christ, Oh, Lord, let this church, let the church be filled with the knowledge of the pure gospel that Paul defended before these Galatians. Let us be defenders of this pure gospel. Let us walk in the truth of what you have done for us. Praise be to God, in Jesus' name. Amen.